Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Pensions Expert Fortnightly Podcast. This week we'll be talking LGPS funding and after which the sad part, which is death. Our own Oliver Telling frames the longevity impact of coronavirus as a bitter reprieve for pension funds. So we'll ask what a high mortality rate really means in terms of scheme deficits, liabilities and funding. And then finally, we'll ask our guests to indulge in a little bit of soothsaying for us. What do our Delphic oracles predict will be the biggest, most lasting change in the world after COVID-19? My name is Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert. And our oracles today are Charles Cowling, Chief Actuary at Mercer, to whom I cannot help but give free publicity, and Catherine McFadden, Head of Public Sector Actuarial Benefits and Governance at Hyman's Robertson. If we begin then on uh, LGPS, so on May 5th, we reported on the results of an LGPS advisory board survey, which found that 5% of respondents anticipated cash flow issues this year, and then 8% regarded that as a possibility. The qualifier for that was, of course, that this may get worse as the crisis unfolds. It does also appear that some people don't understand what the word possibly means because they said no, and then they said that it may change, which I would understood that was the definition of possibly. Catherine, if I can start with you then, from your perspective, has much changed since? What's the sort of the broad picture on, on the health of scheme cash flow that we are, however many weeks we are into now, the, the crisis? So the cash flow position in the LGPS is interesting in the light of the crisis. So, so broadly speaking, the cash flow position is defined by the, the contributions that the, the administrative authority is receiving from employers and members versus what they have to pay out in pension benefits. And obviously, there are some potential strains as a result of the COVID crisis. And some of those strains may come from having to pay out lump sum benefits more rapidly and at a higher level than is usual or typical. And at the same time, there is the possibility of employers defaulting in contributions, so not remitting their contributions to the fund. And as you say, it's very possible that these will have impacts on cash flow. The reality is that the governance around it is strong. Um, the LGPS tends to be still in a cash flow positive position. So, And where they aren't, there's measures in place to, to ensure that the liquidity is there to make the benefits. So I, I don't see it as being a major issue or, or one that should be causing undue concern, but definitely something that the function will be keeping an eye on. Sure. And Charles, I wonder if you want to, to come in on this, maybe you could expand on some of the, the risks unique to these trying times. I mean, what, what would your perspective be on this? I would tend to agree very much with what Catherine has said. The cash flow issues facing most pension schemes, including local government, are probably lower down the order of worries facing most trustees. Even pension schemes that have been around for a long time as the local government schemes have been, as Catherine says, are typically still cash flow positive. And the really mature schemes tend to have an investment strategy which is uh, realising assets to pay pensions as they fall due. So we have a, a number of concerns in the, the COVID-19 crisis that we faced. Cash flow is, isn't top of them. Clearly, it has to be there and it needs to be considered and looked at carefully. We're alert to the possibility of transfer scams it is one area of concern which affects all schemes. There are more individuals who are potentially in desperate need of cash 
and more susceptible, more vulnerable to being persuaded to to transfer out of, of pension arrangements. And we are wary of an increase in scams in that area, but that's also got a, a potential to impact on cash flows if, if there is a, a big rising tide of requests for transfers. We haven't seen a huge evidence of that, but that's not to say we're not alert to it. So, yeah, it's something to keep a close eye on. As I say, I think there are other more pressing concerns for, for, for a lot of us at the current time. Sure. I mean, that was certainly the impression I got. I have the, I suppose, unique advantage of having started my first job in the pension sector as everything appeared to be collapsing around us. But um, everyone I've spoken to, certainly where cash flow is concerned, has told me that one of the few areas in society that are not in state of imminent collapse is pension schemes cash flow. So that's uh, encouraging news, I suppose. There's another LGPS angle which uh, we, we've covered in the last couple of weeks as well. There's um, the, I mean, a Supreme Court decision fairly recently which overturned the government's proposed ban on divestment policies by pension schemes. It's pleased some activists, I know the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, were very keen and were pushing for this. It arguably, though, highlights the distinction between what we might call ethical and ESG investments. There's obviously the impending launch of the Make My Money Matter campaign, which, I, as, as I understand it, aims to get scheme members much more involved in the investment side of their pension scheme portfolio. If I could begin with you, Catherine, so what would be your take on this distinction? Is there, should there be scope for schemes to consider what we might call non-fiduciary ethical factors in their investments? Or is it still very much the case that the fiduciary is key and the ethical is something that's nice to have on the side, but is, is perhaps less important? So it was certainly an interesting ruling. In some ways, you could argue it doesn't change very much because the guidance that triggered the original case had already been amended and that had been removed from it. So you could argue that not much has changed. However, as a topic, the question of ethical investment and other factors as well, or ESG factors as well, continues to be a, a hot topic for the LGPS. So we're back to the two factors that the Law Commission says is that we can look at other factors as long as there's not a risk of significant fiduciary impact. So, that, you know, there is significant impact on returns. And as long as that um, any decisions in that way reflect the members, what the members would want. So it's not what the administering authority or the committee wants, it's what the members would want. So so we're really back to that position. And it's certainly a, a topic that's getting a lot of um, consideration at um, committee meetings. Okay, and Charles, when it comes to campaigns like the Make My Money Matter campaign, assuming that it is successful in getting members much more engaged with these investment decisions, what are the risks associated with perhaps members who, who bring in a certain viewpoint as to what they believe the right thing to do would be, which may perhaps not align with risk assessments by actuaries and other people involved in the pensions world who are specialised in investments. Is there perhaps a, a risk that some scheme members might bring in a certain political angle to their choices, which perhaps schemes would not be too keen on representing? Yeah, I think there's always a risk that that could happen and that members will get on hobby horses and raise pet issues and even get quite sort of evangelical and vocal about things that they believe passionately. But at the same time, I think it is right that we should reflect uh, what members want. I think that's a really important principle. And the idea that just because investment experts might know better in terms of what options may yield a, an optimal investment return, disregarding other factors, doesn't mean that other factors aren't important. And, and, and I think the whole drive uh, for ESG 
considerations and the wider ethical investment one is one that's only going to continue. And I think it's entirely right and appropriate. We've seen with climate change and a number of other areas that people are prepared to want to invest and see investments in things that are aligned with their beliefs and their views and that that's more important than getting an extra tiny bit of investment return and I think the industry has woken up to this and is embracing it and and I think we're likely to see more of it and I think that's a good thing actually. Very good. If we move on then to the the slightly more um, miserable part of the podcast, which is mortality. I think the, is it the Institute for Fiscal Actuaries? I think they estimate around 55,000 excess deaths over the course of the year. And um, presumably this does have an impact on scheme liabilities and funding deficits. I wonder if we could begin with you, Catherine, to explain to me as a, as a complete layman in this matter, exactly what those impacts are. How does an increased mortality rate impact pension scheme funding? So when when funding for a pension scheme, there's an assumption made about effectively how long the member is going to live and so how long the pension will be paid. And so to the extent that a pensioner's life is is cut short or if they don't live as long as was assumed in the valuation, then the, the scheme doesn't have to pay out as much in pension benefit and there's a referred to as a mortality profit because people are not living as long as, as was expected. That is offset in the short term. We talked about the cash flow earlier, offset in the short term by paying out death grants. So how this will all play out is still much to be really to to, to be decided. It's probably too early to say from the data yet what the ultimate impact will be. There's a few factors at play. So there's the short term. If we have deaths at younger ages and we're paying out lump sums for those. And then if the deaths that are occurring in the wider population, the the 50,000 or so plus deaths you talk about, If they are mainly falling amongst older pensioners, those who were expected, if you want, to die in the next few years anyway, then actually the mortality profit will be pretty small because we were expecting those lives to cease in in the reasonably short term anyway. And then there will be potentially a medium term impact on all of this um, as we look over the next few years to to see how it plays out. So we've heard talk of a possible second wave. So we've yet to see what impact that might have. So even before the year is out, we, we might see a difference. And then there's the impact that might be had on longevity over the next few years. So if the population that have um, succumbed to the COVID virus were the population that would, in the normal course of events, have died in the next few years anyway, there's a, almost a kind of survivor piece that we may see lighter deaths in the next few years because those who would have been expected to die have, have already died. So, And then there's the kind of impact of some of the efforts that have been made to limit the spread of the virus. So things like better hand hygiene, lower stress as a result of um, less commuting. So all of those could have an impact on longevity over the medium term. So certainly lots to debate, lots to to look at, um, lots to look out for. But I think it's it's possibly early yet to say what the the impact on the pension schemes will be. Sure. Charles, would you agree with that? I mean, uh, projecting forward... I'll ask you to do a more general projection afterwards, which is hopefully a bit more fun. But what would be your your take? It is very difficult to tell at this early stage what what the long term impact is going to be. Uh, You mentioned 55,000 deaths potentially from COVID, which is awful and tragic. But actually, that's about the same numbers we had in terms of excess deaths three or four years ago when we had a bad winter and a flu epidemic. And that level of excess deaths is within normal fluctuations. 
the issue will be whether there's a much longer term impact as a result of this. If we don't get a vaccine, and it's by no means certain, and this is around for years and years, then it could mean that the days of ever increasing longevity are numbered. You know, we've had a life expectancy increasing at two or three years a decade for the last hundred years. That's five or six hours a day. Life expectancy has improved for the last hundred years. Well, that has to come to an end at some point. We can't live forever we would think. And it's possible that coronavirus may be part of a tailing off of that longevity improvement. And if that is the case, then that will have an impact on on pension scheme finances, because if people don't continue living longer, then clearly you don't need as much money to pay them. But I think it is too early to speculate whether that will be the case. As Catherine said, there are potential health benefits out there from less pollution because we're not driving as much, from people exercising more and other factors. On the other hand, economic downturns are never very good for well-being and for health and longevity. So there's just too many factors at this stage to be putting money on which way it's going to go. You mentioned exercising more. I think my my projection, this will be by way of a very awkward segue. My only projection I can safely make is that if the lockdown continues, I would have gained five stones by the end of it. But um, <laughs> if we can then move on to the uh, the projecting forward, I'm going to ask each of you to pick one thing, the biggest thing you think will have changed when this crisis is finally abated. If I can start with you, Catherine, what would be the biggest revolutionary change you might see in the pensions world? I'm not sure this is directly in the pensions world, but I think the biggest thing that we as a society have to address out of the back of this is the situation for adult social care and and long-term care of the elderly in society. As we look at how this virus has um, progressed through care homes and the the death total from care homes, I think on a serious note, I think we as a society will very much have to look at, and and to be honest, that was overdue anyway. I mean, governments have tried to broach the topic, but with very limited success that I think we as a society do have to look very carefully at how we provide care for the elderly. And that might be the the catalyst of the burning platform that actually forces us to to have an adult conversation about how we look after and how we fund looking after the kind of more vulnerable members of society. So, and that would be a positive if we can come out of this and and look to improve the way that we that we manage it and the way that we fund it. That that would be a massive positive. That's I don't know whether that's a prediction or an aspiration. Possibly a bit of both. I think it's it's okay in these times to be aspirational. The more of that, the better. And uh, Charles, what would be your your offering? I'll give you two. I'll give you a personal one because one of the things that I've noticed is I've explored more parts around where I live than, than I ever knew existed. The desire to go walking and get out of the house has meant that I've walked around the local area more than I've ever done before and discovered bits just around the corner from where I live that I didn't know existed and discovered neighbours and and waved to people that I've not normally come across and seen. And that's been great. So that's been a positive impact. Back to pensions, there are lots of things that COVID-19 is going to change. I think one of the things and one of the things that's pressing on trustees, and this will have changed uh, fundamentally, is the whole issue of the real importance of of monitoring covenant, understanding affordability and understanding businesses better. Too many trustees are perhaps not, despite the regulator's encouragement, 
uh, haven't been as diligent at really understanding businesses and really understanding the strength of businesses and cash flows and, and balance sheets and so on. And of course, that's really tough for lay trustees because to do that properly, they need experts. I think there's going to be an increasing recognition that this is a really tough responsibility for lay trustees and there are going to be a need to involve more experts. I could see more delegation as a result of all this and and in fact more use of, of fully delegated solutions like master trusts and fiduciary investment solutions on, on the back of trustees realizing that the days of, of running this on a relatively amateurish uh, way, really can't stand up when you've got a crisis. And that's a really tough world for lay trustees. So I could see some fairly fundamental changes coming in as a result in governance and, and running of, of many trustee boards. Perfect. In which case, I think what we will do is have you back on in a year and uh, we will see how many of your predictions have come through. Finally, then, it's our always a pensions angle. And I think, Charles, you mentioned that you had one for us, an unexpected pensions connection to the real world. It was just a lovely story I read about a blossoming of the Welsh language in New York. And it's just one of those sort of slightly heartwarming tales of, of lights in, in sometimes in dark places. And this was the story of, of 96-year-old Ray McDermott, who hasn't spoken Welsh for 40 years uh, and was was worried that she never would speak Welsh again until her son made an appeal, an online appeal. And as a result, this elderly Welsh lady has now been put in contact online with numerous Welsh-speaking people and is enjoying the delights of speaking Welsh again. And it's just a nice heartwarming story that in these days of Zoom and Google meetings and so on, that actually it's also enabling some of us and particularly some of our, uh, the more elderly members of society to reconnect in ways that they haven't been able to do before. That's a very nice note, I think, on which to end. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Catherine, for making my first show a, a, a pleasure, actually. Apparently, all my fears were unfounded. Assuming my editor agrees, we will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you to any listeners we have for listening to us. Join us again uh, in a fortnight, and we will see you soon. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.